0: All right, well, turn with me to Luke chapter 21, and we will um, begin this. The title is Escape the Coming Trouble, and we're going to make it down to probably verse 27 tonight. I think we'll get that far, maybe not that far, but we'll see. That's what I've planned for. And although much of this chapter is about uh, the return of the Lord and the judgments that are going to come upon this earth, we actually begin in verses 1 through 4, with a, a model of generosity that all of us are, are pretty familiar with. And, and if you just kind of look back into chapter 23, you can catch the, the flow. Uh, I, would, I would make the case that if I was dividing up the chapters, I would have put verses 21, 1 through 4, in chapter 20, not chapter 21. And I think you'll, you'll see this. But we see in chapter 20... Um, Jesus says, beware of the scribes. They, you know, they go around, they want the best seats, they want the best place. They, they, they're pretentious. They're devouring people, widows, specifically um, their, their houses. And then he speaks of a widow in verses 1 through 4. He looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. I think as we look at this, the first thing i like to say is Jesus is not necessarily asking everybody to put everything in that they have. The point in the context is there's a bunch of hypocrites that are running around in that temple. And they were pretentious. And they were devouring widows' house, uh, their houses. And so Jesus sees some that evidently would have represented the pretentious. And then he saw the widow. And it was what he had just spoke on. We read that in verse 21, verse 1. And he looked up and saw. So it just became an illustration for him right there. And in he speaks of these that had come in and they were putting their gifts in. It was uh, not uncommon that if a really large gift was going to be making it into the treasury that the trumpets would be blown and that everybody would set their attention upon that gift that was about to, to go in and people could be amazed at that um, you know huge amount of uh, money that went into the treasury. But when Jesus looked up, that's not what was impressing him. What was impressing him was that there was this this poor woman and all she had was two mites. I mean, you can think in terms of a penny, okay? This is all she had. And she put that in. She put both of them in. She didn't keep one. She put both of them in. And she placed them in there. And upon doing that, as Jesus said, she had no more livelihood. She had nothing else. And so Jesus looks at this and he says, that's what's impressive to me. Not all this other stuff. And I don't think it in any way takes away from the legitimate gift that comes from abundance. But it certainly is standing in contrast to the person who gives out of hypocrisy. And so he says, look at her. She is generous. She has given more than all. And and so I think what we should have in mind here is, is to never look at what we have the ability to give and dismiss it as being significant to the Lord whether that is a reference to your talents or whether it's a reference to your actual money, that the Lord takes what little we have. If you only have a few loaves and a couple of fish, he'll take them. And he will use those to produce something so much greater. And so maybe you feel kind of like that, that widow maybe. It's like, man, I have nothing to really contribute of significance. So what's even the point of giving? Here's the point. The reason why we give is to worship God. Newsflash, God's not broke. Isn't that good news? He's not He's not in danger of bankruptcy or any of that other kind of stuff. We give because we worship him. We give because we want to say thank you for what you have done. We give because we believe in the work of, of the ministry and, the, and the, the cause of the gospel. I think another reason for us to give is it just has a way of cutting the ties of materialism. And when you give, it just, it just, it's one more opportunity. And it seems like in the world that we live in, you can you can walk out, and those those strings, those ties of materialism are continually seeking to wrap themselves around us again and again and again. And so that habit of giving continues to disconnect us from living for those things, and certainly this woman understood that, and Jesus is commending her generosity. So the question, and I'm not going to spend any more time, but another minute on this, of how much should I give? Give generously, that's the answer. The New Testament answer is give generously. And um, you you will receive as you give. Give in such a way that you hope to receive back. And so if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you're going to reap bountifully. And so this is what the Lord loves. He loves the cheerful giver, right? He loves that person that is generous in their giving. And so Paul, when he is writing to uh, the Corinthians, says, "Determine in your own heart what you ought to give. But we know that it ought to be a free will offering right? Not out of compulsion. We know that it ought to be a, a, a an act of worship. And we know that it ought to be something that is marked by generosity. And that is a, a moving scale, right? I mean, I, I mean that in the sense of, well, even maybe in, in the course of your own life, right? Um, what you gave when you were, you know, 16 and 17 year olds, probably different than what you're giving now. If you are much 40, if you had 40 years to that, does it, you know, you're able to give more. And so that if you only give what you gave when... If I only gave what I gave when I was 16 and 17, um, and I was doing that now, yeah, I think that pretty much would be in sin because it would be withholding from the Lord. And, um, and so even amongst our, our group here, right, there's, there's a different abundance that we have. And so as we give, you can't just measure generosity... Based solely on the dollar amount. Because in this illustration Jesus gave, the one who was really generous gave the least. But she gave all that she had. And so her generosity was the greatest. Although the monetary amount was the least. So good to know this is how the Lord looks at these things. Now as we move on, picking up at verse 5, we do come into this section where um, he begins to instruct them about the last days. And it's because of some of the questions that they've asked him. You can also and should read Matthew 24 and 25 and Matthew 13. Those are uh, parallel passages. Um, But as you're going to see tonight, um, there's some challenges as you lay these out side by side. Um, One thing that you might want to do, I got Matthew 24 and 25 and actually, I think I just did it with 24 to begin with. I got Matthew 24. I made three columns in my Word document. I put Matthew 24, and then I put Mark 13, and then I put Luke 21, and then I just went through and I began to try and space them out so that they, they lined up in those columns talking about similar ideas. And um, I think that would be a great exercise for you just to see, wow, that language is so similar in Luke to Matthew, but there's something else that's being talked about. So there is um, the need to look closely, and I've yeah, been humbled by the word of God and just the need to study it more and more and more. Uh, so let's go into this section and begin. But what I want to do is I want to read this. I want us to read this section. So we're going to pick up at verse 5, and we're going to read for a little bit here. So says, Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned, With beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So those. It's an important verse, verse 7. They are asking some specific questions. And Jesus is going to give some answers to those questions. Uh, But again, in Matthew 24, um, we also find the question, and what is the sign of your return, the end of the age? Those are also questions that are being asked. Verse 8. And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time has drawn near, therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first. I think it's a pretty important line right there. and We're talking about timing. And so he's going to give us some timing words um, and phrases. Uh, These things must come first, but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, you got another timing phrase there, don't you? So this is, this is going to happen, but it's not the end. And then you have wars and rumors of wars. But before, verse 12, but before the the wars and rumors of war and what follows happens, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. Verse 20. But when, so now we're another kind of timing phrase, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant. And those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. A very specific reference there to another time period. Verse 25, and... There will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars. And on earth, the stress of nations with perplexity. The sea and the waves roaring. Men's heart failing from fear. And the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when you see these things, so another timing there. When you see these things... Uh, begin to happen, look up, lift up your eyes, because your redemption draws near. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all trees, and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happen, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And then he goes into a portion of scripture and um, talks about be on guard, watch out. So we'll stop there for right now. But let's, let's come to these verses 5 and 6. And in these verses, um, we read here about the temple and how it is going to be destroyed. They're looking at this temple that's still in the building process. It has been in the building process for 40 years. And there's still um, a handful of years to go before this going to be completed. Um, so about another 15 years or so. This is a long building project. And it was a project that was in- so impressive. Um, and they, you know, people say, if you have not seen the temple, you have not seen a building. Um, it was just... No expense was spared. Herod, surprisingly enough, um, a man who loved to build, um, put all kinds of effort into this temple. And it was stunning. And we see that here in verse 5 because they're like, man, this place is so beautiful. And um, they said that you know the, the marble that was used and the gold that was used, that when you would look at this place, when the sun was in the right position a couple of times a day, it was so bright that you wouldn't even be able to look at it. Now, I don't know if that's hyperbole, and just speaking of the reflection of it, but you get the idea. Even that if it is hyperbole, you get an idea that they're trying to communicate something. And from a far distance, there was so much marble and limestone that was used, they said it looked like snow that was on top. So a pretty imple- impressive place. And they, they talked about the stones. We talked about this in our last study, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this. But, but they said, this is, this is amazing, don't you think? He says, well, actually I think it's all going to fall apart. That's what I think. You, you're looking at this and you see it as some, something that's like, these stones will never be toppled. He said, no, they're actually it's pretty shaky stuff right here. These things are about to come down. Not one stone is going to be left upon the other. And he's referring to something that does happen in 70 A.D., Again, I don't want to spend the whole time reiterating this. You can go back to our last study. Um, but General um, Titus is going to destroy this city. Uh, the temple is going to be set on fire. All the gold is going to be melt. Um, it's going to get into the cracks and the crevices of the stones of the temple proper. And uh, they are going to topple them to try and get out um, wherever the gold has gone. Also, just a, um, certainly judgment as well and fulfillment of the Lord. And, and so this is what took place. Um, but now the, the retaining walls of the temple compound, right, so we all know what a retaining wall is. You put a retaining wall up so you can extend your property, right, and make it flat. Um, so this is something that Herod did. And the Western wall where you see Jews praying is part of that retaining wall. But as you go down into The tunnels along the western wall, you see some massive stones. They're just huge. Now, these are the retaining wall stones, but I mean, they're just incredible. And, um, you know, even the ones that are still left piled up that were pushed off of this Temple Mount, off of the retaining wall, if you want, and down into the marketplace, some have been left behind and they were huge, and you can see the damage they've done. But Jesus said, This is what is going to take place. And we're going to come back to it again, but that's exactly what happens. The the temple is destroyed not long after it was built. And this is connected um, with Israel's rejection of Jesus. And he says, you know, you've rejected me, but man, you have terrible days coming. I came for peace, but now you're going to have a different experience. And so he has mentioned this coming judgment more than once. But he gets quite specific about the temple that is going to be destroyed. So here in verses 5 and 6, no end time stuff. Unless you're a disciple and you are looking forward into the future, things are going to happen down the road. But as we look at these verses 5 and 6, it's something that's happened in the past. But here's the thing about the All of it Discourse. The temple is referred to in a couple of different ages. So you have the temple that we're reading about now in the age of the disciples. But we're also going to read of the temple in the age of the last days. Days that we have not yet seen. And you know, you can even look back in, in history. And you can see like in the days of um, Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, a crazy madman who came on the scene and desecrated the temple. Um, you can think of the days in which um, uh, the Assyrians came and they attacked and they were surrounding Jerusalem, and it looked like they were going to fall and they didn't. There's a lot of times in history, Israel's history, where the temple is, you know right in the center. Now a little while later, Nebuchadnezzar came in and he did destroy the temple. So you have this many references to the destruction of the temple. Some of them are historical um, and some of them are future. So this is a historical look at a prophecy that Jesus gave. Now here's the the newsflash. Jesus is a prophet of God. He's a true prophet of the Lord. And when he speaks of things that are going to come to pass, they're going to happen and so what he said was going to take place um, is exactly what took place. And that should cause us to, to sit up and find comfort in the words of the Lord, but also knowing that he, we're going to read other prophecies of things that have yet to come that go out beyond even the day in which we're living right now, is that we should expect that they will be fulfilled with the same degree of accuracy. And so we listen up and we want to know what the Lord has to say. Now in verse 7, they asked him saying, Teacher, when will these things be and what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So he's going to give them um, some information on that. But they're, they're inquiring about the timing. Again, in Matthew and Mark's account, other questions are added of what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So These are kind of temple-related questions, and they're going to get a little bit more of the end-of-the-age answer, too, that was talked about in those other two locations. So It's really helpful in trying to nail down which question is Jesus answering when you are reading this. Now, for them, um, the temple being destroyed and the coming of the Messiah, they just see this as is one time piece, right? They see this is all happening at the same time. That's why Jesus says, but just know, this is not the end. I'm telling you these things, but you got to know this. It's not the end because that would have been their inclination is to put it all together. They had no idea that there would be at least 1,900 years, right? Coming up on 1,900 years between the destruction of the temple they were admiring and The events of the last days that still have yet to come. So they don't see this church age lasting for 1,900 years. They're expecting it's going to happen right away. So Jesus has to, um, you know, kind of frame it up for them. And and that's what we find in verses 8 and 9. The temple's destruction is not the end. And he said, take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name. So here's something. There's going to be those that will come and they'll they'll say that they are the Messiah. And the time is drawn near. So as you say, it's the end of the age. They're going to say, I'm the Messiah. Don't go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. So this is speaking to them uh, as it relates to the temple. And it's like, hey, there's going to be things that are going to happen. You're going to have all kinds of conflicts. People are going to say that, you know, they are the Messiah. They're going to say it's the end of the age. But be mindful. Don't be deceived by this because those things are going to happen, but it won't be the end. It's not going to be the end of the age when that takes place. So if you think about this, as those who hold to a a pre-trib rapture, meaning we believe that Jesus will rapture the church before the Great Tribulation, and we say... As The the greatest proof for that is that we believe that it is an imminent event. In other words, there is nothing that needs to take place for that event, for the rapture to take place, um, and for the the Lord to return for the church. If you don't hold to a pre-trib rapture, then you have a long list of prophecies that need to be fulfilled before Christ can come at his second coming. Some will put that at the middle of the tribulation. Some will put that at the end. But either way, you have things that have to take place. And there is one thing that had to take place. And we're reading about it, right? This destruction of the temple had to take place. And these events, the commotions, that that all had to go on. And he says, this is going to happen, but it won't be the end. That happened in 70 AD. These things were fulfilled. And so we live in a time that we can say we believe the Lord can return at any moment. And again, some will say, well, I I believe that he's going to come at the end of the tribulation. It's the same as the second coming. Then you have a lot of things that have to take place. We'll read about some of them tonight. But you won't see Jesus until you see the Antichrist first. You have to see the abomination of desolation before you see the second coming. And we can make a really long list of those things. But the strongest... uh, reason to believe in a pre-trib uh, position is that we believe that Jesus can come back at any moment. So he talks about the deceivers that were going to come. And, um, and he says, watch out for them. Josephus, in his writings, and he's not, it's not you know, scripture, but he talks about and mentions some of these false prophets that were running around around 70 AD and how he, they were deceiving people. And I'll just read to you a couple of lines. I mean, there's a whole section. But I'm not going to do that to you. Um, it says, The false prophet was the occasion of the people's destruction, who had made a public proclamation in the city that very day that God commanded them to go up on, upon the temple, and that there they should receive miraculous signs of their deliverance. Now there was then a great number of false prophets, suburned by the tyrants, to impose upon the people who denounced this to them, that they should wait for the deliverance of God. Um, then he goes on later, he says, thus there were the miserable people persuaded by these deceivers. So as, G- as Josephus gives a historical account, a secular account of the destruction, he says, man, there were all kinds of false prophets. So what Jesus said, not only about the stones of the building, um, took place. That's an easy one. The, the temple is not there. And... You can see that the stones have been, you know, were toppled and there are some historical accounts. Also, it is true as it relates to um, this. So, again, we're talking about the temple's destruction and that that is not the end. This this is going to happen. There's going to be false prophets. You want to know what the signs are going to be? All right, there's going to be false prophets. But just know that's not the end. I don't want you to be discouraged. When you see this and now there's going to be a, a you know a time is going to elapse I want you to know that it's not going to come immediately. You need to have this in your heart, you need to have this in your mind. Now verses 10 to 11 we move into the coming tribulation. So we move on from the temple for a moment. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. And I think it's that last phrase that to me helps to put this in in that, that position of the coming tribulation. It's not just any kind of signs. It's great signs. These are going to be mega signs of destruction and trouble. These events are called in Matthew's account birth pangs. You can kind of look over there, you know, and, and you can kind of compare a little bit. But we also have the word then. And the word then is it's introducing something that follows in time. That's actually the literal definition of the Greek word then, it is to introduce that which follows in time. So when Jesus says then, or we have the commentator saying, then he said, he's giving us the next thing that happens in time. And, and so he, he gives us a description of, of these things. Now, this is where it gets to be challenging. So some will look at this, pre-trib, pre mill believers will look at this and they will come to different conclusions about when these events are going to take place. Some will say, This is a general description of the church age. In other words, all of these things have been going on and Jesus is just saying this is what's going to happen. And it's certainly easy to see this because since Jesus said it would not be the end, there has been wars, there have been earthquakes, there have been famines, there's been many pestilences down through the ages um, and there's been fearful things. But it's that last line and great signs from heaven that gives me pause in putting this as just a general description of what has happened since the temple was destroyed until the return or the beginning of the great tribulation others do see this as a specific description of the ever-increasing trouble that will intensify just prior to the Lord's return They see it as synonymous with the first half of the tribulation. So verses 10 through 11, they see this as synonymous with the first part of the tribulation, the great tribulation. That's an interesting statement. Is there any evidence that that could be true? Because we have a lot of writing about the great tribulation, even the first half of it, don't we? Yes, we do. So it's it's Revelation chapter 6. Why don't you turn there? with me and I'm, I'm you know I'm not going to draw a hard line of conclusion on this I certainly have uh, my leanings and I think sometimes I've gone back and forth on this depending if I'm reading in Matthew or if I'm reading here in Luke so I am still learning right along with you but let, let's read Revelation chapter 6 and many Um, do make uh, a correlation between what we just read in verses 10 and 11, right? Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, wars, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, and fearful signs in the heaven. Okay, let's read Revelation and let's read about the seals um, that are opened and reveal a type of tribulation woe that's going to come. Now I saw the lamb open one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. So there is the kingdom against kingdom. Battle is going on. When he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature say, come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given him a great sword. So similar. Verse 5. Then when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I look, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it, had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do no harm uh, the oil and the wine. So we get a description of famine here in verses 5 and 6. The fourth seal in verses 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice with the four living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades uh, was death, and Hades followed with him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill it with the sword, hunger with death, and by the beasts of the earth. When I opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. And so it goes on. So you, you get you can see why um, they they see these verses here and the parallel verses in Matthew as being descriptive of the first half of the tribulation. Um, again, not everybody's in an entire agreement with it, but we know for certain <laughs> that what we just read in Revelation chapter six—that is the first half of the Re- uh, of the tribulation—and those things are going to take place. So the question is, does the description we read in verses ten and eleven? Is that the same time period that Jesus was talking about? Or is he just talking about a general time period that these types of things will go on uh, between the destruction of that first century temple um, and the end of the age? And so people hold different opinions on this. But um, again, these uh, birth pangs, as it's called in Matthew, um, if they are the events that are described then in the great tribulation. And then we must be cautious as we look at every single earthquake that goes on on earth today. If, if we need to be cautious with every pestilence, pandemic, every war that happens. Um, because this has been what has gone on for 2,000 years. No, they are the very things that are going to take place with incredible intensity and ferocity in the Great Tribulation. And they're like birth pangs that are going to get worse and worse. And then it's just going to be, um, you know, you're going to have this terrible time. So I just, we, I think we need to measure ourselves um, in, in looking at some of these things. And so when somebody looks and says, oh, there was an earthquake, Jesus is about to come back. I just kind of like, well, I hope you're right. I mean, it'll be great. I'm, I definitely am all for Jesus coming back. And I know that these are the things that are going to happen prior to his second coming. And I know these are the things that have gone on. I'm just not so convinced that every one of these things that we see going on is, is a sign of the rapture. Why is that? Because a rapture is what kind of event? A signless event. So... If it's imminent, it means nothing needs to happen. So what do we make of what we see going on in the world? Does it mean nothing? Oh, I think it means something. I mean, I I think all of us have probably looked back in these last couple of years and seen the turmoil and the perplexity of nations and all the rest that's gone on, uh, the pandemic, and we're like, okay. All right. So got a little glimpse of how it may unfold in uh, the Great Tribulation. However... Put it on steroids compared to what we've seen. Okay? So, there, yeah, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's impacted the world. But I do not think for a second that we are in the midst of the Great Tribulation. So, um, again, you can do your own study, compare these to Revelation chapter 6. And um, I, so, yeah, I guess I would gently lean to the idea that in verses 10 and 11, that it's talking about that same time period. And part of the reason is because of what we read there in verse 12. So verses 12 through 19, we speak of a time of persecution before the end of age. He says, but before all these things. So in verse 12, what he's about to describe, um, uh, or what he's going to talk about is going to precede what he just referred to in verses 10 and 11. So there's going to be wars, there's going to be pestilences, there's going to be famines, But before these things, right? So it's not a strict chronological order. You can see that pretty clearly by these, you know, these phrases of of timing. So if verses 10 and 11 are something about the Great Tribulation um, or just the general church age, whichever position you take, what we read next in verses 12 through 19 goes back in time. It doesn't go forward in time, right? So these things will precede all of those signs. They're going to lay hands on you. They're going to take you to synagogues. Don't rehearse what you're going to say. I'm going to give you what you should say at their very moment. You're going to experience difficulty from the people that you're closest to, your relatives, your family, verse 16. But don't worry about any of that. It's all going to be okay. So, the time of persecution before the end. uh, Yeah, this is exactly what, the disciples went through; they were delivered up to the synagogues, they were betrayed by family, they did stand before the rulers of of the nation and you know and of nations, and they gave an answer and caused those that listened to not even know how to answer them and realize, wow, these are men that have spent time with Jesus, and so th- this is just a description of what again what you're going to go through. So for the disciples. Really important that they that they hear this you're going yeah the temple's going going to be destroyed um, and there's events that are going to come upon this earth they're going to be terrible they're going to be tragic it's going to be birth pangs of the end of the age, but before that happens, you're going to be persecuted pretty badly and of course, this applies not just to that first century but but to to the churches down through the ages that have gone through persecution now. Verses 18 and 19, kind of a little difficult to understand, but not a hair of your head shall be lost, but we know that people are going to be killed. And by your patience possess your soul. So the, the idea is stand fast, right? Don't, don't give in, don't walk away, don't allow the difficulty to send you running. Verse 19, verse 18, um, I've got your hairs numbered. I, I'm not going to lose sight of you. I've got you, and even if you lose your life, you will remain And so uh, many believe this is just an idiomatic expression to speak of. um, You're still you're going to be all right. You're going to be okay. And um, many of them would suffer um, persecution and not die and die a natural death. Many would suffer persecution and end up dying. So verses 12 through 19. um, Certainly a description for the disciples of the difficult days that they were going to go through. As we move into verses 20 through 24, we come into um, a period that will be called the times of the Gentiles. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its desolation is near. So this is one of the questions that they asked, right? What will be the sign? And he goes, all right, here you go. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let those who are in the country uh, enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant. And so he goes through this description. And then he says in verse 24, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This again is a difficult passage to say, are we talking about the first century AD surrounding of Jerusalem? Are we talking about the end of the age, you know, abomination of desolation um, and then just prior to the second coming of Christ surrounding? So is this already happened or is this something that happens in the future? Now, if you read Matthew 24, well, let's just do it. Let's go to Matthew 24. And as we move to Matthew 24, verses 15 through 22, um, you're going to see that this is definitely similar language. So the question for you to answer is, is the language of Luke, although similar to Matthew, speaking about the same time period, Or is he just using similar language? Because in Matthew, it's pretty easy. It's the end of the age. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So pretty similar language right there. Let him who's on the housetop not go down, take out anything of his house. And let him who's on the field not go back to get his clothes. Woe to those who are pregnant, those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And so, obviously, in Matthew's account, um, that section is talking about the great tribulation. The question is, when you look in Luke's account, is he just simply answering the question that the disciples asked and I think that is probably what's going on. This, this description is speaking of the opening question. It goes back to the opening question. And he's just saying, hey, you're going to be surrounded. And you're going to need to flee. And interestingly enough, historically, um, the believing church, the disciples, um, when Jerusalem was being surrounded in A.D. actually, not I won't say 70, but you know a little bit earlier um, in 68 um, 66 or 68 we'll, well I'll give it to you in just a second there was an initial surrounding of Jerusalem the general at that time realized his supply line was short he went back to try and take care of it and as he did he was being attacked by Jews the whole way And um, this is Cestus Gallus. And he noticed that his supply lines were not secure. He didn't have enough supplies to maintain an extended siege. So he lifted the siege of Jerusalem in order to go back to Caesarea. On the way, he was attacked by Jewish forces and killed. Temporarily, the city was no longer surrounded by the armies. By the way, I'm reading from Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Uh, He has a great book uh, called The Footsteps of the Messiah that talks about end time stuff. If you want to go get a book, that's a good one to uh, put in your library. And he says, so, um, so every single Jewish believer was able to leave Jerusalem. They crossed the Jordan River and set up a new community of Jewish believers in the town of Pella in the Transjordan. They were joined by Jewish believers from uh, Judea, Galilee, and the Golan. They, there they waited for the prophecy of Jesus to be fulfilled. In the year A.D. 68, a new Roman general by the name of Vespasian and his son Titus again besieged the city. And in the year A.D. 70, the city and the temple were were destroyed. Altogether, 1.1 million Jews were killed in the final onslaught, but not one Jewish believer died because they had obeyed the words of the Messiah. So um, the, the first general, Cestus Gallus, he attacked in 66. He retreated was cut off. There was a temporary reprieve. The Christians read this, and they're like, when we see it get surrounded, it says we're to flee. And they took it literally, and they fled. Um, But it's, 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 at the very least, this is, if it's not a parallel to what Matthew read about the last day's abomination of desolation, then at the very least, what this is, it's a... um, it prefigures, it's a first century pre- prefiguring of what's going to happen at the end of the age. Again, many times in Israel's history, they've been surrounded um, and they've been delivered. Um, so, um, yeah, again, I, I, just, I would put this in the category of uh, verses 20 through 24, the days of the disciples and they're being warned. Now we find an interesting statement at the end of verse 24 and it says, That Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So what are the times of the Gentiles? Well, I mean, we don't have to think too hard on this. The trampling of the Gentiles, right? So it's the authority of uh, foreign powers over the nation of Israel. And this description of nations really was given to Daniel in a prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. And in this, and throughout that book, you find out that he, he speaks of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians coming in and destroying them. That took place. Um, Persia came after them and ruled over them. Um, the Greeks came in. Then the Romans came in. And, of course, it's the Romans who are having their influence over the nation of Israel at the time that Jesus is on the earth. And, and so there is this trampling that happened. If you look down through history, the Muslim um, empires ruled and reigned over um, Jerusalem. I mean, you can't go to Jerusalem and hear anything about history without hearing about you know, the Muslims and their time of having an influence over the nation of Israel. And he says this is going to happen until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Israel goes out of the land, 70 A.D. They have been out of the land up until 1948. um, And at the last days, there is going to be, again, a Gentile force that's going to be over there, and it's going to be the Antichrist, right? We know this. He's going to be influencing himself. The abomination of desolation will take place. He will take control, and he will have control Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And they will be fulfilled at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So in one sense you could say that the the beginning of the times of the Gentiles was in 586 uh, B.C. When Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed. And they have been going since then. The 70 A.D. experience was just a further... um, view of the times of the Gentiles. It's one more aspect of that uh, rule, that trampling that was talked about. And that trampling will continue all the way up until the time in which Jesus comes back. And when he comes back, he's going to destroy the Antichrist. And never again will there be a Gentile power that rules over Israel or exerts its influence, but will be the rule and reign will be of, of Jesus Christ. So it's a day that we're waiting for, right? It's something we're looking forward to when he returns. But in the meantime, this is what's going to happen. If you follow Israel's history, this is, this is exactly what's happened. She's always had another force, another invading power. I mean, you go over to Israel and you, you're going through and, and learning about it. Your brain starts to hurt with all the trampling that's taken place. Am I right? For those of you that have gone, it's like, oh my gosh, which empire is this again? I, I don't even know anymore. And you're just like, you're being, and they're like, well, this is this period. This is that period. And it's this, you know, this ruler, this leader. And it's like, it's, it's foreign powers. Just as the Lord said it would be. But it's not going to be that way forever. Um, it will come to an end. And it will end when Jesus returns. When they acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember what Jesus said? I've come and things that were meant for your what? Your peace. But not anymore. You're going to have to deal with nations invading. So uh, this is what's being referred to. Now, verses 25 through 27, as we begin to wrap it up here, I know your brain's hurting. Verses 25 through 27. It says, And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing. From fear and expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. Imagine in the middle of the great tribulation, what fear will be upon people. I mean, we've gone through something for the last 18 months, and fear is at an all-time high. Imagine if you're in the midst of the great tribulation. Yeah, you can talk about people not wanting to go outside. I mean, it's going to be people are going to be just struck with fear. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. In other words, even, even the, the, the sky is going to be meteorites. They're going to be falling and there's going to be all kinds of signs. It says, then they will see. So here's our timing piece for this, this passage. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So no question here that this is at the end of the tribulation. Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation. So we've seen some events that talk about the days in which the disciples were living in. Don't worry, you're going to have trouble, but it's not the end. Things are going to happen. Well, But then there's going to be those things that are going to happen. You're going to see great signs in the heaven. Revelation chapter 6, the first part of the tribulation. There's going to be things that are going on. But then he comes back in verses 25 through 27, and he talks about his return. And he talks about the second half of, of the tribulation. So again, this would be a a time that is in the future. I mean, we look at what's gone on in the world and there has been some terrible days that certainly have happened in the world, Um, you know, down through the ages. You think about some of the wars, some of the genocides, some of the incredible famines, some of the pandemics that wiped out massive amounts of population. But imagine putting all of the worst things that have ever happened on planet Earth all into a concentrated period of time of seven years, and then taking all of that concentration and making it 10 times worse than what it's ever been. That's the great tribulation. Jesus said, The world's never seen days like this. It's going to be such a terrible time. And I mean, it doesn't even get into the whole spiritual, spooky side of what's going to take place as the Lord opens up the Abuso and lets demons out. They go upon the earth and begin to torment people. I mean, yeah, you're, people are going to be freaked out or afraid. And so this is what's, what's coming. And, um, you know, the, the title of the message I gave is Escape the Coming Trouble. And we'll get to the escape uh, passages in our next study. But this is all going to go on on the earth. It's going to come. Um, I don't think, again, what we've seen here in the last couple of years is any of what is in the Great Tribulation. I think it's just like, eh, here's a little sample of what it'll be like. These are the types of things. And I I think we just, that's how we should think about it. It's like, man, can you imagine when the Great Tribulation begins? And um, so when it happens, it's going to be intense. So Jesus mentions that it's going to, all culminate, this great tribulation, with his coming. That's the, that's the climax of it all. Why is he coming? He's coming to save Israel. Because they have said, all right, we get it, you're Jesus of Nazareth, you're the Messiah, save us. And he's going to come and save them, just the way he instantly came to save you spiritually. But he's going to save them physically. He's coming to judge the nations, the battle of Armageddon. He's coming to set up his kingdom, a thousand-year reign upon the earth. But let's read of that coming. I think this would be a great way for us to to end our study tonight. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. It's much more glorious than Revelation chapter 6. Still tough though. And I'll pick up at um, verse 6 of chapter 19. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is a righteous axe of the saints. We're talking about the, us here, right? Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have a testimony of, of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Although I did read one commentator that seemed to figure it out. But uh, I don't know that I really trust his discovery. He was clothed with a white robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. So he's judging those nations, right? And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven come and gather together for the supper of the great God. That you may meet the flesh of kings and captains of mighty men flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and all the flesh of all the people free and slave both small and great. So here's the judging of the nations and the, the Antichrist. And I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth and the armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And then in chapter 20 it talks about his kingdom. So this is, I mean, we read it with just such a, a simple statement um, back there in Luke where Jesus says that he'll, come, you know, he'll return with great glory. Well, that, that's the glory that we're talking about. That's, that's him coming back to save the nation, to judge the nations, to get rid of the Antichrist and his influence, and then into chapter 20 to set up his thousand-year reign. You know... The Lord has gone out of his way to give us a whole lot of information about what's coming, hasn't he? I mean, there is so much prophecy. And all of us should take it seriously to read it and to understand it. Um, It's not given to us to confuse us, although it is a difficult study. I'll be the first to admit it. But we should study it and we should know it and understand what the Lord has given to us ahead of time. Um, It's not in any way to set up a a date of Jesus' arrival. We'll talk about those those that have uh, set dates in the past and the folly of setting dates and um, how they've made a grave misinterpretation of a passage. So if you ever wonder, how do people keep coming up with dates when he said don't come up with a date? We'll look at it next week and we'll see how people misinterpret a passage That gives them an insight to setting a date. And it's sheer folly. And they've all been wrong every single time. Um, But the point is that we can know how it's going to end. That Jesus is triumphant. That Jesus rules and reigns. And that we will be with him. You are those saints that are dressed in fine linen. Riding on the horses with him. You are coming to rule and reign with him. And the Lord wanted you to know that. He wanted you to know I win, and you're going to be right beside me when it's all said and done. So he's going to come back in in glory, and we will be basking in that glory, but we'll be coming alongside of him. So we've been given examples of generosity of the the widow who gave her two mites. We see that the temple was going to be destroyed. Jesus spoke of it, and it was destroyed. We see how the church took heed to the prophecy and went and hid in that first century um, uh, destruction, and we see that the Lord says He's coming back, but there's going to be terrible days before He returns. And um, some of what we'll get into in our next study, um, and it won't be next week, it'll be the following week, is going to be talking about more about the, the tribulation and how we relate and where the church belongs in the midst of this passage of that primarily is dealing with the nation of Israel. It's not dealing with the church so much. It's dealing with the nation of Israel. So we'll talk about that. But Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we're grateful, Lord. The first coming of your son fulfilled so many prophecies. And um, the world was not ready for him. We don't want to be like that, Lord. We want to be found watching. We want to be found waiting and looking, allowing the hope and the certainty of your son's return to purify our hearts and our lives, to put a sense of urgency within us to make a proclamation to all people that you're coming back again. So, Lord, would you have that work in our life? May we not be deceived. May we, may we be as those first century disciples were where they remained steadfast. They didn't give in. They didn't cower in the face of trouble. Um, And, Lord, we want to walk like that. We want to live like that. So for whatever trouble, Lord, we will experience prior to your coming for us, the church, help us to be ready to stand fast. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen.